0: Oh God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your community of people indwelled by your Holy Spirit and thereby able to love one another. We thank you for that and we thank you for your love for us and for your word that you give to us. We pray that you would uh, open our minds and our hearts to know you and to love you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Okay, this is the second uh, part on a a four-part series uh, called Journeying Through the Pastoral Epistles. Uh, Last week, we began uh, by asking the question, who is the God of the Pastoral Epistles? Um, We spoke about why that was a necessary question. and Our basic answer to that question was that uh, there were parallel statements. Concerning God in the pastoral epistles, you have a statement standing on its own saying that the Father is the Savior, the Father is gracious, the Father is merciful. And parallel to that statement, without any qualifications, you also have statements about Jesus saying that He is the Savior, that He is merciful, and that He is gracious. If God is who He is by His actions, then Jesus, because he does the same actions of God the Father, is also uh, part of the divine identity. That is to say, uh, without Jesus Christ, there is no God. And we spoke uh, uh, in this way in a, trinitarian, in a Trinitarian manner, that really the bottom line is that the God of the pastoral epistles is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we saw that this is the, the core uh of early Christianity where on the one hand you have the confession that God is one so Christianity is Jewish we don't don't want to cut off the Old Testament like Marcion did so God is one and yet he's triune and how do you bring those two together okay and that's kind of the little bit the the struggle uh, that you see worked out in the New Testament and then uh, worked out perhaps with even more precision in Nicaea, in the Council of Nicaea later. So the first lesson was who is the God of the Pastoral Epistles? The second lesson today is how is the God of the Pastoral Epistles known? How is the God of the Pastoral Epistles known? So by way of introduction uh, let me question my own method here. Should not this be the first lesson? Shouldn't the question of how I know God precede the question of who is God? Because if I don't know how to know God how am I going to know God? Shouldn't, shouldn't this be the first lesson? How is the God of the pastoral epistles known? And then <clears throat> the second lesson, who is the God of the pastoral epistles? In order to speak about God, should we not first speak about how we know God? Should we not first speak of a method to know God? If our inquiries into the nature of the God of the pastoral epistles are not to be groundless dogmatic assertions or wild undisciplined statements, should we not first devise the proper method or channel by which we approach God? So, if you see a planet or something that looks like a planet out in the sky and you want to get to know that planet, study it, you have to devise a method. Okay, What physics, a mathematical method will I use in order to get to know that planet? You cannot know that planet without a specific uh, precise intelligently designed method. Is that the way that it works with God? To know who God is, must we first have a scientific method in order to know him? Well, I want to say that the answer is yes and no. So there's a little paradox. Uh, I like that word better than contradiction. Contradiction is too, too flat and easy. Paradoxes. Uh, but in any case, I think the answer is yes and no. Uh, let me give you the reasons why I think that I am right in making this a second lecture and not the first lecture. First. See, this would have been in your handout. A, God is not just another object. God is not just another object. Every object you study, uh, the planets, a painting, a cell under the microscope, it's an object. God is objective, to be sure. He can be known objectively, but he's not an object like any other. Let me tell you what uh, one great theologian Karl Barth said. He said, God will not let himself be placed as one in a series. God will not let himself be placed as one in a series. So God is not just another object to be studied. He's in a class by himself. What differentiates God from all other objects is that he's the living Lord who is as such free This means that God is not at our disposal This also means that the possibility of the knowledge of God does not rest in the cleverness sharpness or precision of our methods Okay usually if you want to know an object you say if I don't have if I don't have the right method I'm never going to be able to get to know that object I have to come up with the right method with the right channel I'm suggesting that the knowledge of God does not rest in the cleverness, sharpness, or precision of our methods because He's the living Lord who is free. As if having the right procedure will be like a magic key that prides open the nature of God. Our knowledge of God does not depend on our capacity to devise just the right method, but on God, who was the living Lord, is free to choose whether He graciously unveils himself or not. You cannot force God by the cleverness of your method, of your questions to open himself up. As the free Lord, he chooses whether to graciously unveil himself or not. This may be received as good or bad news, depending on your view of God, yourself, or maybe your temperament. You like to find things out. negatively the fact that God is not just another object which we by our power can unveil is a blow to our pride. Isn't it? All other scientific endeavors you say if we work hard at it, if we have just the right equation, we can know this object. Not so with God. He cannot be manipulated whether by our promises, anger, Threats or attempted guilt trips on the Almighty. Imagine that. But he cannot, we, he cannot be manipulated by any of those things into, into opening himself to us. He's the free Lord. This reality puts us in a proper creator creature relationship where we are utterly dependent on the benevolence of God to open his hands for our benefit. If you like to be in control, and I certainly am one of those people, but if you like to be in control even in your relationship with God, the reality that God is no static object which can be coolly dissected may anger you. I like to control things. I like to know when it's gonna work when it's not gonna work. But that's not the way it works with God. He's not a static object that you can coolly dissect and this may anger you. On the other hand, it is the testimony of Holy Scripture that God wants to be known. Even though we cannot force Him to make Himself known, the testimony of Holy Scripture is that God, in fact, wants to be known. His constitution is such that being loved His love overflows from the relationship within the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to include us as His creatures. Because God is love. Eternally love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That love overflows. It's not necessary, but it overflows into creatures like you and me. Whereby God forms a relationship with us. The basis of knowledge of God rests Not in us. If you want to know God, it doesn't rest on you. But in God's very being. Therefore, we need not fear that God will not be known by us. For he desires that we know him. That is who he is. In fact, as we shall see shortly in a passage from 1 Timothy, he sends his son Jesus Christ. (coughs) Precisely so that we might know him. So you think God wants to be known? Yes. What is the proof of that? That He's willing to send His only Son, Jesus Christ, so that we may know Him. So He wants to be known. So we need not fret that our inability to pry Him open will mean that we will never know God. Okay. So that's the first point. Then, uh, why not start with the with the method? You know, would you write a dissertation? Uh, what's the first chapter? method. What's your method? You know, if you don't have a method, you cannot write a dissertation. Uh, We don't begin with God like that in the study of God because God is not just another object. But there's a second reason why we don't begin that way. And, And hear me out, this is a little, a little complicated when I state it abstractly, but then when I give you a concrete example, you're gonna see how easy it is. So hang with me on this one. Okay, number two. True objectivity, real objectivity means that the nature of the object determines how the object is to be approached. Let me say that again and then I'll make it concrete. True objectivity means that the nature of the object determines how that object is to be approached. Contrary to popular belief, it is not true that there is such a thing as a purely objective method that can be indiscriminately applied to any object. The nature of the object, the object itself, tells us how it wants and must be explored. So here's an easy example of what I'm trying to say. You have a painting there. Will the methods that you use to study a cell be appropriate to study a painting? Well, no. You want to study the economy. Will the methods of studying the economy be used to study the atmosphere? Or can you study the with the methods of the atmosphere the economy? Well, you can't. Well, why not? Because of the nature of the object. See, the painting is a painting. It wants you to study it in a different way than the way you study uh, in the realm, say, of physics. See, the nature of the object determines how you should approach it. Not just uh, some method that you devise in your head, and then you, you indiscriminately put it on anything. Okay, now this means that one that one must be careful not to impose an alien framework on an object in order to know that object. Don't use the method of cells to explore that painting. Rather, the object itself must provide the framework. If this is true what then can we say about the knowledge of God? Stop, stop there and think about that. If it is the nature of the object that tells you how it wants to be known what can we say when the object is God? Well we must ask a subsequent question. What is the nature of God? Who is God? For only if we know His nature can we appropriately learn how to know Him. And now we have come full full circle. The knowledge of God cannot be separated from the nature of God. Or the nature of God determines the knowledge of God. So that's why I began with the nature of God. (laughs) So... The nature of God determines the knowledge of God. And this brings us to a massive, and that's an understatement, this brings us to a massive impasse. And it is this. God being God, and we being humans, how can we possibly know His nature in order to learn to know Him? If in order to know God, you need to know His nature, and yet He is God, and we are humans, how can we possibly know Him? So that is... The impasse. That is the big problem. Now we get to the pastoral epistles, uh, and uh, see how the pastoral epistles themselves pose this problem. Now, but before I go on, any questions? That was oh, that might have been a little heavy, uh, but uh, any questions? Yes.
1: One thing to think about is how we relate to God as it's changed as we go. You could approach God because he was, he was a column, you know, a fire, or you could actually see Him and He could actually talked with people. And then during the time of the Gospels, Jesus was actually a, a person that you could approach and talk to. And now we just have this—I guess—the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And so the way that the object of God that we've interacted with seems to have changed over the course of the Bible.
0: Yeah. Uh, I see what you're saying. I think there's 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 some good points. I, w- I wonder though if, uh, I don't think the Israelites would have viewed the pillar of fire as God himself. They probably would have viewed that as a physical manifestation of the God who cannot be seen, right? So they wouldn't say that's God. Um, so in that sense, uh, the God of the Old Testament remains kind of hidden, unveiled but hidden Remember John one, how he ends his, the first chapter. No one has ever seen God. Okay. Uh, the only begotten God. We'll get to that in just a minute. Uh, so I I see what you mean, but but uh, um, yeah, I'll have to think more about it. Let's like there
1: was <laughs> the ark of the covenant. There was a physical place where God's presence yeah. was, whereas now I don't.
0: Yeah, but, but God but God was invisible, right? So you still you still so that's 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 one of the problems that we're gonna see in First Timothy. How our nature as humans is that we are fleshed people, we live in human bodies. But God is spirit. John four, Jesus speaking to the Samaritan woman. God is spirit. How how can you <laughs> there is a chasm between our creature reality? And God being Spirit, how can we know Him? Uh, You have. Yeah,
2: I I think you mentioned the the first chapter of John's Gospel. I think also the first chapter of Hebrews, where the the writer says, "Not so much in the way God."
0: very good so so I think that's helpful to your question um, that yeah God hasn't changed but uh, what he allows of himself to be known has been progressively unveiled uh, in a sense Um, now we can only know that from the incarnation looking backwards right not the other way around okay so the problem how is God known in the pastoral epistles the problem. the problem is, A, the hiddenness and otherness of God. Now, I have a couple of verses for you here from the pastoral epistles. Uh, the first one is from 1 Timothy one seventeen And this is a, a doxological statement by Paul. He says, Now to the King Eternal, 1 Timothy one seventeen now to the king eternal, now listen to the next two words, immortal, invisible, that's probably Philip, Philip. no, Uh, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. So look at those two statements about God, those two predicates of God. He is immortal, now how in the world can a person who is mortal like you or me, be able to know someone for whom death doesn't exist. He's ever living. Well, he's also invisible. How can we who live in the realm of the material know the invisible God? By the way, which, uh, which passage from the Old Testament is this an echo of when he says invisible? Keep that in mind because I think the next maybe the next uh, the next verse that I want to quote will help with that. So that's one passage that tells us about the problem of the knowledge of God. He's immortal and he's invisible. But there's another text. 1 Timothy 6:16. 6, Let's look at that one, please. 1 Timothy 6:16. 6, Paul says, pick it up in the middle, uh, God The blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now listen to the next few words. Who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light. Whom no one has seen or can see. That's a barrier. Who lives in unapproachable light. Now what does that make you think of? Think about the Old Testament. uh yes, light, but uh what's another text where remember exodus thirty three thirty four where Moses says, "Lord, I want to see you' he says, no one no, no one can see me and live I'm going to let you see my glory, but but who, you cannot see me basically, you cannot see me as I see myself mm-hmm. um. now, how can Paul say this? and yet be speaking about God. (laughs) He basically says that God is is very difficult to know. He lives in unapproachable light. No one has seen or can see, and yet Paul writes three letters about this God. So that's a problem. The problem in the pastoral epistles is that God is uh, hidden and other, and this raises an impasse for the possibility of our knowledge of God, but we find in the pastoral epistles also the solution. How is the God? How is God known in the pastoral epistles? The solution. How can this be overcome? How does the fact that He's wholly other and invisible? How is that overcome? Well, let me propose a subjective. Uh, excuse me, an objective solution and a subjective solution. By an objective solution, I mean, something that is outside of you, something that's out there, okay? And then by a subjective solution, I mean something that, that God did in your, in your soul, in your heart. An objective solution to the knowledge of God, and then a subjective solution. First, the objective solution. How is it that the invisible God, who lives in an unapproachable light, who no one can see, has seen or can see, how does he make himself known? The answer is the incarnation. The incarnation. You see, we often think of the incarnation only f- as uh, as the way that God came to forgive our sins. But the incarnation is also the way by which God reveals Himself. Now, look at the following text in First Timothy, First Timothy two five. First Timothy two five. Well, that's a wonderful text it reads as follows, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Now, have you ever wondered why he emphasizes the man, Christ Jesus? And the way that, I don't want to be throwing Greek at you, but the way it is in the Greek is it's very—it's in your face. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Didn't Paul... Just imply in chapter one that Jesus Christ is God? Isn't that what we said last week? That He's God? So why here does he say the man Christ Jesus? Well, here's the here's the issue. Uh, to know God, uh, only God can make himself known. Okay? Let me let me uh she had all this on the handout. Mm. Uh, sorry. Uh, but okay, so let me quote you a few a few uh, theologians. Uh, Irenaeus, very famous theologian of the second century, he said, uh, We are taught that God can only be known by God. Only God knows God. John Calvin, the great theologian, said the same thing. Um, only God can reveal God. Carl Barth says the same thing. Only by God is God known. So that means that if Jesus Christ is going to give us knowledge of God he himself has to be God, right? On the other hand, if he's going to give us knowledge of God he has to come into history So that he no longer remains the invisible, unapproachable light God. Do you see? So in the incarnation, the Logos, the Word, the Son, puts aside his glory, right? Philippians 2, and takes on flesh. He adds humanity to his divinity. He takes on flesh. We say that, uh, well, we recite the Nicene Creed, which I'm glad we do. Many churches don't, uh, but we recite the, the, the Nicene Creed about uh, be, him being of the same substance as, as the Father. Uh, so uh, Jesus Christ, uh, who was not flesh before the incarnation, right? He wasn't flesh before the incarnation. Takes on flesh, and that way he can be the perfect mediator, because as God he can reveal God, and as man. He is not invisible and we can see Him and we can write about Him. And we saw His glory, glory as of the uh, what's the, the uh, only begotten Son. And so you have the Gospels which tell us the birth, the life, the miracles, crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. So that's how the impasse, the impossibility of the knowledge of God, that's how the otherness and the invisibility of God which keep us from knowing God, that is how that is overcome. It's overcome by God Himself. It is His initiative because He sends His Son who, being God, takes on flesh and as God, He can make God known. As man, He uh, allows us to know Him in history, in human flesh. Okay. So the answer to the question, how can God be known, is the Incarnation. A lot of religions don't believe that. A lot of religions don't believe that you can actually know God okay there's really nothing objective about the knowledge of God it might be a feeling it might be subconscious in your subconscious it might be um, uh, an intuition right uh, this feeling that I get um, but not in this objective way I wonder if, if part
1: of the Uh-huh. and they kill him. And, then, and so so how is this, you know, it's, you might say there, well, God is communicating something about himself through the previous agents, right? Uh, what What is it that he's communicating? And, and this gets to the question that we had earlier. It seems to me that God uses various agents to communicate his will for us, and that that's something that we can see across different religious traditions. Mm-hmm. Then, typically, God communicates some way his will for us. Our actions are you know how how should I be living my life so that it is congruent with God's will for me? And the stunning thing about the Christian uh, faith is that God's will for us is to be known. That that we would know Him, mm. and that that distinguishes Christianity from other sort of categories of religion where there is God communicating and God is is. There is mediation of God's will, but the will doesn't extend to being known, and so the, the idea of God's nature as the object of our, you know, analysis or our uh, or our interaction is actually um, that, that 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 comes from the fact that the the that salvation has a has a sort of trinitarian form that the that the goal is to be known and brought into the light. Of Mm-hmm. And for that reason, there has to be this, precisely the way you're talking about that you have to have God be incarnate in order to be known in that way that can bring you into the divine life. Whereas it's mm-hmm. perfectly possible for God to tell us, to cut that out, or hear, hear my great Ten Commandments, or you know, mm. come into my presence and offer sacrifice to me. All those things are appropriate, but as soon as the, the will for us is to, be, is to know God's nature, I to be brought into the divine life.
0: Well, oh, mm, very um, good. Very, so very I helpful. Have, I have, I have some yeah, no, that. Yeah, that's very helpful. So, and that's why it is important that uh, Jesus Christ is the face of God, mm-hmm. uh, and God, as you know Him in salvation through Jesus Christ, is the same eternal God. Uh, as one theologian, uh, T. F. Torrance likes to say, there is no God behind the back of Jesus Christ. Okay. So the God that you meet through Jesus Christ in the Trinity uh, operating in our salvation is exactly the same eternal God. So a lot of people say, okay, so I know God through Jesus Christ, but is there another God somewhere there? You know, is there something about God that, that, uh, that is different from, from Jesus Christ? The Christian answer is no. Father, right? Yeah, exactly. So Jesus, there is no other God behind the back of Jesus Christ. So someone has said that the tears that Jesus shed are the tears that God sheds. The pain that Jesus suffered is the pain that God suffers of the suffering of humanity. There is no God behind the back of Jesus Christ. Very very important. Uh, A second objective way of overcoming uh, the the impasse between our knowledge of God, uh, uh, between God and our knowledge of Him uh, is the Holy Scriptures the Holy Scriptures. Uh, so first is the Incarnation and then we have the Holy Scriptures. So the Incarnate Word and the Written Word as some theologians like. Look at 2 uh, Timothy 3 15 and 16 here. 2 Timothy three, fifteen to 16. Actually let's begin in 14. Uh, Paul is talking to his protege timothy verse 14 but as for you continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in christ jesus all scripture is breathed out by god and profitable for teaching for reproof for correction and for training in righteousness and so on you see, uh, if you want to know salvation, which is salvation, is to know God. God is salvation. Right. Salvation is not some abstract thing out there that you know, and God is something else. Salvation is God. Okay. To know God, you have we have the holy scriptures. Now, in verse 16, he has given us, uh, he has told us something about the nature of those holy scriptures. He says that they are breathed out by God. Okay. So. Maybe an analogy would be like with Adam in Genesis. Adam was not a living being and then God breathed into Adam and he became a living being. So the idea is uh, that in some sense that that remains mysterious for us, God so led the writers of scripture that what they wrote is God's God's truth. Uh, It corresponds to the being of God. He breathed out those scriptures. They come from him. They're not the invention. It's not by the cleverness of man. Although he uses the language of man. Right? When God inspired the Bible, he didn't use angelic language. He used Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. Right? Um, nevertheless, there is a, 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 they go together in a way that we, we don't understand. It's not dictation. Right? A lot of people think, well, th- to say that the Bible is the word of God means that that God just dictated it word by word by word. Well, there are parts it appears in the prophets where, where that's the case, but in, in the majority of scriptures, uh, dictation doesn't seem to be mechanical. Dictation doesn't seem to be the way that God inspired the Bible. Now, think of the Psalms, for example. Fit that in a, in a scheme of, of mecha- it's very difficult. Uh, but uh, but the point is that even though it was written by humans, it is nevertheless the word of God. Because God has so superintended the actions of this human by the Holy Spirit that the end result is the Word of God, okay, so that's the other objective as it were uh, solution to the problem of the knowledge of God, the incarnation and that incarnation uh, which uh, and the holy scriptures by which we learn of the incarnation okay any any questions at this point about The sort of objective solution that is something that is not in you, something that's out there. The Holy Scriptures, right? Uh, Jesus Christ, who lived and died and was raised uh, for that we could know God. Yeah, I I
2: think it's important to to note, as you said, that that any knowledge we have of of God has to be confined to the Scriptures. And so, in terms of anything else we've gone around in life, whether it's a something that somebody else says to us or a great work of literature like Dante or T S L or whatever yeah. that if there's any value in anything outside of scripture it's only because that other thing is reinforcing a truth that the scripture already identified you know it's not that there's some great insight to a particular work of art or, or, or you know, literature or music or whatever it's only because those, that those things have just simply repeated something that the word itself has already saying in his word
0: yeah Although one will have to say that the authors were, are maybe not conscious that they're doing that. Right. Right. Uh, uh-huh. Any other questions about the objective solution to the problem of the knowledge of God?
2: Just one quick verse or two quick verses from Hebrews,
1: where it says, "In many and various ways God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son." And he appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the Father. He reflects the very glory of God and bears the very stamp of His
2: nature, upholding the universe by the word's of power. Oh, wonderful. Thank and you. I love how that just kind of brings. Everything
0: yes, yes, the Old Testament, mm-hmm. and the Testament and the New Testament, and the climactic uh revelation of God in in the inc- incarnation of Jesus Christ. You see, for 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 the Jews, for. Mo- for all Jews, except for Paul, uh, and and Christian Jews, but for Jews, the climax of God's revelation was the giving of the law. see, when God gave the law, that was it. Everything else was, you know, a side dish, or, uh, you see, but Paul says, no, the climax of God's revelation is Jesus Christ. And you can only know the meaning of the law when you look at it through the coming of Jesus Christ, not the other way around. You see, so, Okay, now let's move to the subjective solution. So we said that God, in order to overcome the chasm that exists between him and us, uh, for our knowledge of him, he has himself become a human being and has acted in history so that we might know him. Uh, and he has also uh, given us the Holy Scriptures, right? But, there is, but that in itself uh, is not sufficient for you to know God, right? You could hear about Jesus Christ, and you do hear about Jesus Christ in the testimony of Scripture, right? The Gospels are the writing down of the actions and words of Jesus Christ. So the Gospels are a presentation, a historical presentation of who Jesus Christ is. But that is not sufficient for you to know Jesus Christ. A lot of people read about, read the Gospels. They see a movie about Jesus or something, but that doesn't mean that you know Jesus Christ. There has to be the subjective aspect to it. And there is one word that Paul likes to use to call attention to this. And it is the word that we translate into English as godliness. Godliness. Uh, there are, uh, I can't read them because, uh, well, I'll read one. Uh, but, but the word is used many, many times in the pastoral epistles. It's one of the main words. It's the Latin, for, for those of you who know Latin, is what we, we say pietas, uh, right? Uh, fear of God, uh, Something like that. Uh, but in Titus, which is the the third and the shortest of the of the uh, three pastoral epistles, um, just just one one verse here, and then I'll, I'll have to move a little quicker to to wrap it up. Uh, listen to this. It says, Paul, Titus one one. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Listen how interesting that is. The knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Now, uh, some commentators who are are much better than me at this have suggested that we view the word uh, godliness here as uh, an an encompassing term. That means the rational and the ethical. uh, The spiritual is is an encompassing term. So that means that to know God, here's what I want to get at. To know God, mere rational uh, understanding of God is not, is not sufficient, okay? Knowing facts about God doesn't mean that you know God. To know God means that you have to enter into a relationship with Him, a relationship that changes your life, because uh, the Holy Spirit is given to you and your life begins to change. So knowledge of God is, knowledge of God is different from knowledge in the sciences, or in other of the humanities, where I can be detached. In fact, I may be encouraged to be detached from the object, right? Oh, if you really want to study something, you don't want to let your subjectivity get into the subject. You have to be totally detached so that you can have great results, so that you can have the right results. But in the case of God, that's not how it works. Knowing God is drawing near to God, or rather letting God draw you near to Him, and Him changing your mind and changing your heart and changing your being. So that's a subjective solution as it were uh, to the barrier between God and us and it is uh, Paul talks about uh, the giving of the Holy Spirit uh, that renews our minds uh, and that way we know we know God uh, so what I want you to see here is that uh, as we close is that the knowledge of God corresponds to the being of God okay the being of God who God is is father son and Holy Spirit There's no other God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Trinity is not some extra. Oh yeah, I believe in God. Oh yeah, I believe the Trinity. No, God is the Holy Trinity. Alright? So the being of God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the way to know God is the Father who sends the Son, who becomes incarnate, who gives the Holy Spirit so that you might understand who the Son is. So the being of God and the knowledge of God are related to one another; they correspond to one another. Okay, so that if God were not triune, we could not know God. Okay, so uh, any questions as we as we try to wrap it up here? I think if I want to, if I were to just sort of leave you with something, it would be that uh, that we cannot uh, we cannot force God to reveal Himself to us. Uh, We need to ask for His mercy to do that. And He does that. And I think when He does that, uh, if you're not a believer, uh, I'm reminded of those texts in Hebrews, if today you hear His voice, do do not harden your hearts. If today you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Why does He say that? He says that because there is no guarantee that God will speak to you again. You cannot manipulate God so that He will speak to you when you want Him to speak to you. You cannot say, well, God spoke to me today, uh, but you know, I have a lot of things going on, and I don't know if I'm ready for this business of giving my life to God. So, uh, another time, God, I'll I'll, I'll call on you when I need you. (laughs) It doesn't work like that. It is God who who decides as the free Lord when He's going to speak to you. And when he does, that's why Hebrews says, do not harden your heart. Open your heart to him. uh, So that you might enter into the communion of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.